This podcast is brought to you by OnTrack Studio. Hello and welcome to the Stillness Everyday Podcast. My name is Herodotos and this podcast exists to help you find stillness in all aspects of your life, in finance, in health, in mindset and in your relationships. I created this business because I believe that if you can develop the ability to find stillness in your mind, you will learn to create harmony in all aspects of your life. Find us at Stillness Every Day on social media or stillnesseveryday.com. A lot of people ask me how they can get started with meditating. Now, my first experience with meditation was at a Vipassana retreat, which is 10 days in silence. But I understand this isn't practical for most people. That's why we created the Stillness Everyday Journal. This journal has a range of prompts, which allow you to not only create your day, but reflect on your day at the end of it. The journal also has a range of audible meditations, which are perfect for beginners. Check out stillnesseveryday.com. Welcome back to the Stillness Everyday Podcast. Today, I've got Nathan Tolman on the podcast. Uh, Nathan is a veteran. He's done six tours overseas, Iraq, Timor, Afghanistan, Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands, yeah. Yep. And we're going to talk about what he's doing now and how he's helping veterans, I suppose, transition out of um, the military, find, finding stillness in their new life in the um, mundane world. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about his upbringing, why he joined the military, and yeah, a few stories from, I suppose, while you're on tour. Thanks for coming no, on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a bit about your upbring- upbringing and why you decided to even join the military. Yeah, it's quite an interesting one, I guess, to say the least. Um, I was born in Blacktown, down in Sydney, um, Western Sydney suburbs, so always, you know, proud to call myself a Houso boy, Housing Commission, Um, you know, single mum, four kids, so I had three siblings, two brothers and a sister. Let's just say that the area itself, it sort of, it helped me... Uh, shape the pathway towards Defence Force, I guess, because mm-hmm. of that discipline and um, everything else that come with it. it. Comes back to my mother and her, yeah, poor choices in men. You know, there was a few partners around which weren't the nicest. Um, but at the time, growing up in that environment, it wasn't classed as you know a bit of a beating on us kids or anything like that it wasn't a salt it was just a you know you're a naughty kid here's a smack every now and again so so from your mom that was from my mom's partners yeah. and everything yeah, else yeah. so some of them you know were probably negative role models in my life mm. and my brothers um we were i would say out of control kids um, growing up especially my brother who's two years younger than me we used to fight a lot mum found it hard to control us so she relied on those male figures to mm. step up to the plate and I guess, discipline us, whether it was um, fair or justified. But, you know, being, you know, brothers, we'd always have that little fight. Mum would try and intervene and we'd probably go at her. Yeah, we'd, you know, kick holes in walls and punch holes in walls, call her names. It was was terrible. And I have so much remorse now and that I did all that um, to her. And I always apologise, hey, mum, I'm sorry. Um, You know, sorry for what we did. And she's just, oh, you're just out of, you know, out of control a little bit. But it all stemmed down to it was ADHD mm. um, which diagnosis of ADHD back then was a doctor going okay yeah you're a little bit out of control you you know you'll be okay you know so there was I guess it was it was violent um, mm. towards ourselves so well, I did have a male role model at that time was my granddad mm. um, he had a tough upbringing yeah so I spent a lot of time with him and you know we developed a real close bond um, which you know 
and I guess shaped the pathway to myself living with my grandparents for quite some time mm. during the upbringing um, after some issues. So did yeah. you know your father? Uh, no, I never met my father. I think he shot through maybe um, during the pregnancy at some point. Mm. You know, it was a teenage relationship. I'm pregnant um, oh, and, yeah. you know, see you later. That's yeah. just the way it went. You know, it's never really affected me. I've never really dwelled on it. I've, I don't even know his name for a reason. I don't care. Mm. Yeah, subsequently... We got a tattoo not long ago, and it's a uh, good old Bruce the Shark, you know, where he's, quote, I never knew my father, and yeah. I just make a bit of a joke of it. Mum called me a bit of a dickhead at the time, but <laughs> yeah, so I guess the male influence was all negative up until my granddad. Um, turns out later on, I found out he wasn't even my granddad, he was a uh, step-granddad. Yeah. Yeah, right. um, I was more upset about that. Yeah, so um, I grew up with my grandparents after some troubles at home um, with mum's partners, etc. Um, one in particular, um, he was, you know, recovering heroin addict, so he was um, into the methadone. And I guess that led me to the Central Coast in New South Wales where um, I was going to a pretty good school, um, had some good friends, and we started just going to the beach and hanging out and it was a, a really good lifestyle at that point i had no direction on what i wanted to do um mm. however it was the seed was being planted for the army mm. um just due to the fact that you know my education standards weren't too high i, I did year 12 um results were okay but i knew i didn't want to go to university i didn't want to mm. apply myself it may have been that whole adhd thing coming in the concentration was difficult for me at times so um i just wanted some structure um I spoke to my grandparents about joining the army and yeah walked off the beach at newcastle into a recruiting center and i guess um off i went at the age right. of 18, yeah. Was your grandparents involved at all in military? Uh, no, not at the no. time. Um, I didn't know anyone. Um, mm. Later on in life, I found out my granddad, uh, my actual granddad, come back into our life, and I found yep. out that he was in the Air Force. Yeah. Um, and he fought in World War II in Vietnam. So yeah. he re-enlisted as a pretty much an old man um, for yeah. Vietnam. That's the extent of our military history uh, yep. that I knew of. Um, we had some okay, distant relatives and who had fought in the Great War. I had some photos um, that Nan gave me. She said, she's a great uncle, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but that was it, yeah. So sort of shaped my own pathway. I didn't know too much about it. i just seen the ads on TV, you know, soldiers running around in tanks, jumping out of planes, and yeah, and I just thought it was an interesting lifestyle. Growing up, I didn't go on holidays or anything like that, so it was an opportunity to travel as well. Um, and it was, it was all my friends, they were you know, off on trades and yeah. and what I noticed is that all these trades and everything else, they were influenced by their own family because it was a natural pathway. Yeah. So I didn't have that. So yeah. I had to shape my own and that's that's where the army come into yeah. it in 2000. It kind of, it seems like a obvious kind of path for someone yeah. who didn't have like a, a father in their life maybe. Yeah. It's like, because you'd get like a, a discipline and structure, like you said, out of the military. Exactly. Um, and it, it definitely helped me. I was slow to adapt, I think, in the beginning through recruiting and everything else. Um, Were you like the soldier that got in trouble? I wouldn't say in trouble. I got in, um, you know, for not doing things like shaving correctly or mm. uh, I'd never used a razor blade until I joined the army, so I didn't even know how to shave my face. Um, they give you a lesson on it. I'd be like, you didn't shave properly. I'm like, I didn't know. I couldn't. I don't know how I'm using this razor. So yeah, yeah. little things like that, you know, which you should have, you know, a positive role model to show how to yeah. do that, like a father or yeah. And I guess you know, not making my bed correctly or not polishing my brass or boots. 
in the the way that they wanted you to. Mm-hmm. Um, I got in a little bit of trouble adapting in that way. I guess um, after a while, I started finally getting it and grasping it mm-hmm. and getting that routine and discipline, and yeah, it helped out. So yeah. By the time you left, you were yelling at the other ones to do their job. Or um, I wasn't really. I don't consider myself a yeller. Yeah. Um, I don't think it had an impact, uh, especially with this day and age. And I've been in you know plenty of positions, um, mm-hmm. structural postings and positions throughout all ranks where I didn't find one that it really worked with everyone. Yeah. Um, everyone reacts differently and responds differently, mm. but I'm not, not what, much of a yeller. If you were in your recruiting stage, because I had a mate who went through it, what was what was the position of the guy who would yell at you for not shaving properly? Oh, that was a corporal. Yep. Yeah, right. corporal or bombardier. So that um, was higher than you got to? Yes. Oh, that was no, not higher than what I got to. That right. was lower than where I got to oh, right. in my career. So I was a corporal at some stage yeah. um, and I was fortunate enough to deploy to the Solomon Islands and Iraq as a corporal. So I actually actively led troops overseas, which, which was a great, great thing for me. But looking back now, a lot of those instructors when I was going through they were missing the trips. So they weren't being deployed to Timor. So I think they were carrying some sort of resentment and they just wanted to come at you for that reason. I think there was just some anger behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, some com- compartmentalization there going, yeah. I'm just going to base these guys because I'm here instructing and teaching new recruits as opposed to going to East Timor and serving with my mates and leading trips myself. So so people wanted to go on tour? Yeah, oh, of course, yeah. yeah. It's like joining a rugby league team and not playing, yeah, not playing and yeah. training all your life and not being on the field. So, mm. But it was great. I joined at the perfect time. It was, it was the time where we were deploying to East Timor and, you know, for the next 15 years or so, I was just going from one trip to the other. Or we're training, we're always training for something. Or it's changed a little bit now. You know, we're training for COVID or, you know, some sort of emergency relief. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about Ukraine? Yeah, well, funny you mentioned that. We do have um, troops over in the UK, or we might still have them there. I know rotations just come out of um, some guys going over and training their their soldiers or potential soldiers. So, not in the Ukraine, um, but. Yeah, they're over in the UK helping out. So yeah, to a modern soldier, someone who's in right now, that's, you know, that's bees knees. It's, you know, they're happy. That's their deployment as such mm. for the moment. You know, unless we deploy somewhere else, we'll go over to Ukraine and fight a war there. But yeah. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. That's my personal opinion. So when you go over and train their military, like, is that what you did in Afghanistan? Uh, a little or? bit of everything. So yeah. every trip that I went on was different. Yeah. So... Um, my first one, East Timor, that was United Nations, mm. um, would come out of Inafet, which um, that involved a few significant um, things for those who were over there. But by the time I got there in 2002, it transitioned to UN, so like peacekeeping, you know, right. Blue Beret, Border Patrols, just keeping the TNI and the Indonesians at bay. Indonesians. Indonesians, yeah. So they were at the West Timor border. Oh, right. So, you know, and they were always doing dodgy stuff. Um, So we'd set up observation posts, keep an eye on them. There was nothing, let's just say, we were there for presence Mm. just to make the local villages, especially on the border where I was, just feel a little bit safe. And, Mm. you know, it was hard infantry work, you know, packs on the back, lots of walking. Mm. You know, um, I was a young soldier at the time carrying a machine gun, so my load carriage was a little bit more, I think, than, you know, 
just a rifleman, you know, but we took pride in that. And, yeah, it was just hard yakka. Um, mm. And being a 20-year-old kid, mm. um, yeah, I was enjoying every every minute of it. It was it was good. Um, you formed good teams, good bonds, and, mm. and you were doing your job. You know, we are on that footy paddock, weren't we? So Was there any, um, like, firefighting there? Not or? there, no, no. Um, you know, we, we didn't have too much occur. Um, yeah. You know, we stumbled across... Old pineapple grenades from World War Two, okay. you know, little things like that. Vehicle accidents, um, you know, just people in the village, you know, acting out and coming at each other with a machete and little few cuts and bruises here and yeah. there, but nothing significant. Like the transition into Iraq in like mm. 2004, that was a bit different for us. That was more looking after the embassy. Um, I did two tours on the embassy and um, that was more... What do you mean looking after the embassies, the Australian embassy? Yeah, the Australian embassy. So we had an ambassador and a whole bunch of staff there. So we would provide them security on any meetings that they had um, in and out of the red and green zone. So green zone was, at that time, um, it was safe. Mm. Yeah, the red zone, obviously unsafe. Um, We were in the red zone on the first tour. So we'd just be running around, you know, Standing on the streets of Iraq for hours at a time while the meeting took place. You know, yeah, right. Who knows if someone's going to drive by, mm. detonate a vehicle-borne IED. You just don't know. So, Did a green zone ever turn red while you were there? Uh, so they changed. We went. We actually were in the red zone in 2004, and then it, the embassy or the building next to it, which we occupied ourselves, that's where we slept and lived and everything, that mm. was actually um, a vehicle-borne IED pulled up and detonated. Um, right. A couple of soldiers were injured. You know, we were fortunate enough not to be there at that time, but, you know, we filled those sandbags day in, day out when we mm. were there. So, and then the embassy moved into the What do you mean zone. you filled the sandbags? Oh, physically. Yeah, the barriers. Oh. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, so we had to fortify it. Yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. Just like in World War Two, yeah. um, and what's happening in the Ukraine now, you've got to fortify your positions to, you know, right. keep yourself safe and stop blasts and everything else. So, yeah, right. you know, we had rockets fired at us and. You know, lots of small arms like um, shooting, not directly, you know, at us as individuals, but at the building or mm. drive-bys, a lot of celebrationary fire. It's, you know, a wedding would happen and you just hear all the shooting. And yeah. Right. Can't do anything about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the round's got to land somewhere. So, <laughs> yeah, bouncing off the buildings. But, yeah, so it was, that was a bit different there. That was more like security and protection. Mm. Whereas... You know, transitioning further into Afghanistan in around 2010 and even my most recent 2018-19, it was uh, protecting Australian um, soldiers. So, Mm. you know, we would have our high-ranking officers, um, you know, they'd be doing their job as mentors to the Afghan National Army. So my soldiers and our job was to protect them as so it's force protection. They were known as guardian angels. Um, so we'd send out a couple of guys and they'd just provide security standing around in their gear for long periods of time. So, yeah, it's just security work. Yeah, right. So, yeah, lots of different jobs. And then yeah. there's the full war fighting stuff, which we pretty much experienced in 2010 against, you know, Taliban and insurgency, yeah. um, where we went in fighting and, you know, they're shooting us, we're shooting back. It's, yeah. you know, blowing us up. Um, so when you enter into that... Like in a helicopter or something, or um, different way, different methods. Most of it was mobile on our yeah. in our vehicles, yeah. And we pull up short. 
way in the in the desert known as a dashed and um yeah we'd walk in to it's like a green belt it's like where all the um i guess the hub of the villages are because that's where the rivers run so it's a little bit greener mm. but surrounding that is just desert mm. so we'd park well and truly in the desert so we're out of you know shooting range yeah. walk in and generally by the time we got into that green belt someone's shooting at us because they've seen us coming in so yeah yeah, you could anticipate what's going on. Another indicator that um, we we're going to get into a fight or something was going to happen is the local population disappear. Oh, so, yeah. yep, or locking down. So yeah, right. you don't see any kids or women around mm. um, because the male's getting ready for a fight. Mm. And you know it's safe generally when the kids are out asking for lollies and yeah. you know, whatever else. And you know, you start water, you know, little things like that. So. Yeah, right. yeah they were combat indicators. So when you're coming in, is there some like guys a bit further back with? Yeah, yeah, we've got Overwatch. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the, I guess in summary, just a Big short switch. overview of some of the jobs that we did yeah. um, in my career, anyway. Mm. Yeah, and in those firefights, I imagine that's where you saw some of your mates. Yep, yep. Lose their lives. Um, definitely um, on. Our tour in 2010, we did nine months in Afghanistan and we lost six of our own from our battle group. Um, we also got the bracelet on for each one of those still to this day. Um, and then we lost a further four, you know, special forces operators as well. How many Australians are soldiers been, would be there at one time? Oh, um, we had a battle group, so anywhere up to... 600 to 800 soldiers just in that battle group and then yeah. there's the supporting elements and logistics and everything else and it's, right yeah oh, it could be anywhere up to two and a half thousand three thousand yeah. yeah and yeah. the u.s how many would they have oh i couldn't tell you numbers yeah, yeah. But i know like in 2009 tons. they brought in another thirty thousand. so yeah, right. um we we're over there around that time that transition piece as well mm. yeah that same trip we it, it was um you know, talk of closing down, you know, withdrawing troops, but still took 10 years to withdraw out of mm. Afghanistan. But um, we did see massive numbers of American troops increase, especially in our area. Um, mm. As a French pulled out of theatre of operations, um, we took over some of their jobs, which was great for us. It gave us more to do at the same time because they were winding down. They're not actively going out and pushing the enemy away and keeping it you know, a little mm. bit of a buffer. So, because they want to keep themselves safe. So, by the time we got in, every time we went out, something would happen. Um, right. Yeah, so a lot of our operations in that time were mm. based on just trying to keep the Taliban away a little bit. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, unfortunately, we lost one of our guys on one of those operations. Um, How many Taliban would they have been? Uh, in that, in one firefight, um, which... Uh, it's known as the Battle of Derapet now. There was reports up to 30 to 60 Taliban in the one fight. Yeah. Um, right. You know, in numbers, uh, about 20 Australians and a, a handful of ANA as well, Afghan National Army. So, oh, yeah. yeah, we had a pretty big firefight that day. Um, so that you're outnumbered, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. And right. they had better positions, you know, they were prepared for us. Mm. Um, we had some heavy machinery going, but... Um, yeah, one of our guys ended up, you know, paying the ultimate price and, yeah, he was, um, you know, shot and killed, you know, which it sort of had an impact at the time on our guys and the operations. And it wasn't, it was very rare for a soldier to be shot. It's generally an IED, so right. device, explosive device that killed most of our guys. Why don't they get shot? 
normally. Well, maybe yeah, our gear, yeah, yeah. Um, um, standard operating procedures, yeah. um, you know, and generally they would hit us, um, the Taliban, and we draw. And you think about what they're wearing. They're wearing pretty much what we are now. Yeah, you know, yeah. Very light equipment. They've got a weapon, a couple of magazines, and they can get out of there. We're lugging 50, 50 kilograms. So uh, we can't really chase them up. It's not like the movies. Yeah, um, yeah. So that hit us and moved to another position. So it was very hard to, I guess, get an indication exactly where they were fighting from. Or getting a bead on them and trying to figure out how you're going to deal with the situation. And nine times out of ten, you know, they're shooting, off goes the weapon, and out comes a shovel. So... What do you mean? They're just farmers. Oh, right. See, then you can't shoot them. Yeah, exactly. So, Uh our rules of engagement. Yep. So, Uh um, we had to be, yeah, careful of that. We did have other things that we could test for. What happened if you accidentally did? Oh, you're in trouble. Yeah, we yeah. have rules of engagement. We have yeah. to follow. Right. Yeah. So they know that. Yeah, they know that. Yeah. And right. there are ways around it. We carried um, like a spray where we could test for residue and stuff. So mm. generally you get it just in the um, web of your hand. Mm. Um, give them a spray. Oh, you've been playing with, you know, cordite, which is the um, from the rifle. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and we could pretty much detain them on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we'd get them out of there and hand them over to local authorities. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they'd deal with it. So just the nature of it. It's tricky. <laughs> it was tricky. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I guess that's why we're pretty lucky in that regard because mm. most of it was if they were shooting at us, it's because maybe an ID, an explosion had gone off and we're mm. dealing with that. Maybe we've got a couple of guys who are injured. You know, they might take a couple pot shots at us just to draw us into somewhere and then mm. go. You know, it's preservation for themselves, really, mm. and that's basically a um, complex ambush. So, mm. so if you're, one of your guys got shot, is it first priority to help them, or is it keep fighting? Uh, oh, both. Yep, yep. You've, you you can't stop fighting. Yeah. You stop fighting. You know, you'll have more casualties. So, yeah. you know, the one incident that we had um, is we continued to fight, and at the same time, my job was a, I was a sergeant at the time. So, mm. you know, we practice this in Australia so many times when we mm. have a casualty and. Um, before we train in Townsville and do our, you know, mission readiness exercises. Mm. And that would be practice, having a casualty. And, you know, when it does happen, it's just instinct. Everyone knows what they're doing. So uh, when we lost a soldier, it was, I just pretty much ran down, linked up with our engineers, um, and they carry mine loads. So we need to land a chopper and to get, get our casualty out of there. We didn't know the situation at the time. Just knew that we need to get him, there, get him out of there, get him safe. Mm. Um, and they had their mine lab, so metal detectors. Uh-huh. And they just swept the landing zone, all the potential landing zone, so we could get a chopper because we don't want the chopper landing and blowing up. I ran straight down. Um, we sighted somewhere to land the chopper. We sent the information over, and about half an hour later, chopper comes in to collect the casualty. But the boys are still dealing with the dealing with him, CPR and treatment, you know, five metres away from that is, you know, the guys are shooting and covering. So mm. it's all communication. So, you mm. know, radio, um, as you got to stretcher him down because um, we had him on a hill, had to get him down. And, yeah, we needed covering fire. So luckily mm. we had some vehicles with 25mm um, cannons that were supporting us. So that helped out a lot. Yeah, and then we had some... A lot of bravery on that day as well. We had um, one of the guys just draw and fire. Um, and he was um, later 
um, awarded the Victoria Cross. So, yeah, right. Yeah, so there were some great actions just on that one day, and that's mm. one of many situations that the boys went through over there mm. around that time. Um, you know, that's there's too many, I guess, to talk it's about. Too far, yeah, yeah and we weren't the only call sign or combat team to have a fight like that. Um, mm. Some of the other combat teams did. They had some big ones too, and... Mm. You know, so they've got their stories, and the guys who are doing CPR, they, I imagine that'd be the most traumatic. Yeah, I guess now, um, I don't think many of that platoon is still serving. Um, yep. I was one of the last um, to be serving out of that platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and those guys are still going through some stuff at the moment. Um, you know, giving one of your mates CPR is probably not the nicest thing, but mm. at that time, it's just do what you need to. And even though you know that, you know, there's no vital signs there and there's nothing getting through, mm. you've got to continue it. And But that's, you know, I guess the resilience that was shown that day uh, is those guys putting their mate on a chopper, saying goodbye, and then getting back into the fight. Mm. So it didn't just stop. The Taliban didn't go, oh, we got one of you, see you later. We had to get back into it. So to get those guys back into the fight, that, was, that showed mm. resilience um, just... In that regard, so where do they get all their weapons from? You know, um, sneaking them in through surrounding nations, and yeah. well, they're all Chinese and Russian weapons, aren't they? And um, a lot of it would be left over from the Russian war um, from the eighties. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah, we'd find them everywhere. Um, so they the weren't they and, weren't the weapon standard wasn't as good as yours. Uh no, no, they had like an equal caliber in some of the weapon systems, so same size. Um, rounds, but some of them were trained pretty high, um, and like I said, some were just farmers. They just take a couple of pot shots and put their weapon away for the day and tend back to their crops. So, you know, and that's their income. You know, they've got to tend to their poppy fields and yeah. you know, marijuana fields to feed their family. So, have what a few the, shots. What are the marijuana fields for? Is that like medicinal? Oh no, no, no. Yeah. That's um, yeah, it's more high level than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's their source of income. Yeah, right. Um, same with the poppies. You know. Is it, it's not legal over there? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we didn't deal with much of that. You can't touch them, you know. You, you can't destroy them because uh, you're burning their economy. And, mm. yeah, I guess it all comes down to counterinsurgency operations. You don't want to piss the locals off too much. But, you know, we patrolled through many of those fields. Got some great photos. And, you know, mm. you always wanted photos of sitting in a marijuana crop and send it home or whatever. And... Yeah, it's just uh, just yeah, right. it's it's normal. It it became normal walking through those things. It's yeah, right. so it's all drug money basically. Oh, yeah. that would yep. go Get that to would Europe fund. or whatever. Yep, and it'd probably fund the Taliban and yeah, everyone right. else. So, but you know, we know what they're we're there for, and we're there for each other, and to represent the country in the best way we can. And mm-hmm. and yeah. do you work with like the other militaries, like US? Yeah, and yep, yeah. yep. Um, on numerous occasions, we've worked with around that. 2009 periods when we seen a lot more Americans come through, 30,000 or whatever was um, come mm. over. Uh, a lot of them were, what do they call it, stop loss, where they go home a couple of months and then boom, get back on the plane, you're gone. Yeah, so... So you had no time off when you're there? Uh, yeah, we had, uh, we get 10, 10 days to 14 days off and oh. you can go back to Australia. At the time I was married, had one child, so I just flew home to Australia, spent time with the family. Mm. Um, so one minute you're, you know, you're on a patrol in Afghanistan, the next few days you're back home and I remember just at a hotel on the Sunshine Coast just by a pool and just going oh a week ago you know a couple of our guys just got blown up so mm. you know it's yeah it's a 
there's there's no real easing into a bit of leave. Yeah. And then the next you know week or so you're back into it. So. But when you're over there, you can't have time off. Just no, to, you, no, 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 no. There's no days off. Um, you know, you might have some downtime. Um, yeah. but what's downtime? That's yeah. you know. Getting the vehicles good to go, make sure your weapons are fixed, making sure the guys are fed. Yeah. It depends on the operation too. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. Like my last trip to Afghanistan in 2019 or 2018-19, you know, lots of downtime for me. Yeah. Um, you know, but the boys were out there working, and you know, my downtime was just go to the gym. And yeah. you know, yeah, it was local gym or your US? Oh, US the, gym. Yeah, yeah, yep. So yeah, it's like. US going style, you know, they have hungry goats and pizza and everything else, really? so you can, yeah, it's, um... What, they go and set them up there in their bases? Yeah, yep, yeah, they've got everything. They've even got a, t- they had a TGI Fridays, from what I can remember, on, uh, in 2009, a restaurant, so, yeah, right. yeah they had it all, right? they, they definitely travel in style, but they're soldiers, they do long rotations, and they do 12 months on their tours, whereas ours are, you know, anywhere between six and generally and nine months, so. mm. Yes, yeah, so they 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 get it pretty harsh mm. in 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 terms of um, time off and and everything else, but they do travel in style with their food and everything mm. else. It, say little luxuries, I guess, modern luxuries keeps them happy. Yeah, yeah. So tell me how what I don't understand is how that war can go on for so long with the most powerful militaries in the world there. And then they still won in the end? Um, I guess there was no winner and loser. Maybe from a soldier's perspective, you've seen the changes. When we first went into Afghanistan, you know, in, say, 2001, post-9-11, you had special forces. They were going from cave to cave and, you know, mountain to mountain, getting the uh, al-Qaeda fighters out of there. That was what their target was. And there was a little, I guess, lull where they transitioned over to Iraq started fighting there come back to Afghanistan and you did see it it was all about reconstruction you know and just making sure that I guess the the country had education you know human rights you know um, you know girls could go to school um, building schools giving their giving them a level of education to help them through some sort of you know life outside of Taliban and Al-Qaeda rule. Um, mm. And then you've seen it transition over to training their army. They have to stand on their own two feet, and so mm. training them in resources, equipment, that was a hard job in itself. Like, to get them motivated, um, which was our... To get them motivated? Yeah, they're not, they're not a motivated country. Yeah, right. like they'll only work on certain days. Um, you know, don't, don't try work on their religious days. Yeah. They won't do it. Yeah, so just trying to get them get them moving was a hard thing. What's well, the language that, barrier? Lang- oh, we had interpreters. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So 2009, we started all that. And yeah. come 2018-19, where, yes, they had an army. They were starting to function. Um, mm. Had their own government legislation. And everything was running. Um, I try not to get into the political side of it. And it's, mm. um, but, yeah, it's... And then all of a sudden, it just crumbled again as soon as... Um, that we draw took place, you just slowly watch those places that we fought over and, you know, the bases that we had control of, the areas that we had control of, slowly go back into Taliban hands. Um, and even watching the fall of, was it um, Hamid Karzai Airport, International Airport? So that's the main airport where, you know, people were trying to 
trying to flee the country. We're talking mm. interpreters and anyone mm. that assisted, you know, um, coalition forces, mm. just trying to get safe. And, you know, subsequently, a lot of American soldiers and civilians were killed in that uh, vehicle-borne IED that went off just outside the gate. And I guess two years before that, I was living there, you know, mm. in that same airport. So and that's where all the pizza shops were. And, oh, really? Yeah, and everything. So, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, mm. But... You know, if we dwell... Um, but how, how did the Taliban, like, your purpose wasn't to kill them all? No, not at all. No, 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 no. no. It, it's, it was nothing like that. It never yeah. has been. Oh. Um, it's always been about getting the country to stand up for itself. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there were sympathisers everywhere and Taliban sympathisers. There were, you know, coalition sympathisers. And What do you mean by that? So... Locals who would be, oh, yeah, they, they're willing to help us. And there were other locals who were willing to help the Taliban because the Taliban was still, um, you know, giving them resources and money and, right. you know, go, oh, but you want to, you know, I'll give you a new watch, you know, and I'll give you some money so you can feed your kids for the next week. Mm. Next day we come in and we're like, oh, we can help you with this. And like, yeah, no worries, we'll take what they can off us. And, you know, so it was whoever, whoever's there at the time. Yeah. Right. So you, it was hard. Um, but, yeah, that's what I said. We couldn't dwell on that. We mm. we knew that it was happening. We still got to try. Mm. Um, so would you say it was successful overall? Or? From an individual soldier's perspective, going on an operation like that um, or operations like that, it's successful in your career mm. um, because that's what we all want to do. We want to help somebody. It's, I guess it's human nature, you know, and if you're an empathetic person, you go over there for those small moments and some of those small moments could be, you know, giving a little kid a bottle of water and he'll remember that for the rest of his life on how, you know, an Australian soldier gave him a bottle of water. So he's probably more sympathetic towards us. The Taliban the day before may have just shoot him away, just Mm. go away, palm him in the face. Mm. So that could be the difference between having an extra fighter Mm. Um, you know, my kids could be fighting against that same kid in, in a few years. So I guess it's those little things that's, mm. that's why we did it. So they're the little wins that I looked for, um, you know, and making sure the guys were safe. Yeah. And, yeah, was, cool. and that's a win for me. But overall, yeah, I don't think there was any winner or a loser. Yeah. Yeah. Enough about, the mil- enough about yeah, war. Yeah. I want to kind of go back to... You, your like upbringing in the sense of you didn't have a father, but you've now got kids, and do you see that like important role, the role of importance of you in that position? Yeah, being a father and a soldier for all those years, it was probably the most important thing. Mm. Um, and I do look back now, and I know that I was probably a selfish father. I still think I was a good dad, um, but I looked at positive role models in my life as opposed to the negative ones like my granddad um you know he was caring um or step granddad he was yeah. caring he was compassionate so he sort of shaped me to become you know the human that i am um even though i didn't have the skills in being a father i didn't know what a father looked like mm. however i knew due to those negative role models mm. on you know what not to do yeah. and you know being around guys who, you know, were into drugs and alcohol and just had all those demons, I didn't want to be a part of that. Mm. Um, you know, 
never touch drugs. Mm. And I know kids are going out there and I've got a teenager now who wants to experiment and I'm like, okay, go, experiment. If you want, let me know. Um, you know, I'm not going to come down too hard. Mm. I need honesty because mm. it's a good value um, as opposed to most teenagers now. They run out and do it behind your back anyway. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah it's communication. Um, so, yeah, communication has probably been the biggest thing for my kids. I've always been open about everything in my life, my military life, my 11-year-old starting to understand my military life a little bit more. Um, he's heard me speak about um, some of the traumas, mm. some of the positives, some of the negatives, um, but they need to know it all to understand it and hopefully it has a positive effect on them, mm. you know, when they become fathers. Um you know, it could be a few years away now. And when you see your kids now versus you take you, you back to their age, do you think they having you in their life has taken them on a different path? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. but it's just not... I, I don't look at it as just me shaping their pathway. Yeah. They have a stepdad now yeah. shaping their pathway. Yeah. So they have some really good positive role models. I'm glad that they have, you know, two dads as opposed to mm. zero. Yeah. Um, you know, and we probably make poor choices with the kids individually. Yeah, but mm. if we can communicate, even as parents, you know, mm. we can have the best outcome for for our kids. So, because you know, both our kids, um, which is great. Do you have. get along? Obviously, yeah, we get along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we have a great relationship. It's like not call each other up and <laughs> hey, mate, how you going? Let's. Uh, yeah. Let's have a chat. Let's go have a beer or something. It's not like that. Um, but we communicate about the kids and mm. ex-wife. We communicate. So, yeah, yeah it's um, you know, it is it. The old saying of it takes a village to raise a family. Mm. Uh, raise the kids. Mm. Yeah, it's exactly what's occurring. So, yeah. I'm glad that they have those opportunities. The mm. things that I didn't have. You know, even the ability to travel and to get in a car and go places. Like I never had that Mm. opportunity too often because mum didn't have a car. Mm. So we always relied on a bus. Um, You know, I'd never been in a plane until I joined the army and then Mm. had to jump out of it. So they have a lot more opportunities, but at the same time, I don't want them to be spoiled. Yeah. And so... I I think that's the fine balance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So connection and communication, it's key to me to raising uh, my children and... Mm. Yeah, they're good boys. So I can definitely see that you see the benefit of having a father figure in in the children's life. Because it's kind of where I was going with it. I mean, I know my parents separated when I was 13. And I know the discipline and structure kind of, it left the house. Mm. Because, I mean, even though your mum, you know and yell and whatever you get to a point where you're just now not going to listen anymore like I'm sure what you were doing when you exactly. were young yep. so you you do kind of need whether your dad is going to um, whoop your ass or just you know be there to give you stern direction and that's right and you mentioned discipline mm. um, and a lot of people do confuse you know discipline to structure mm. you know discipline is not um, smacking your children and yelling at them and as we call it in the army knife handing them stop doing that you know discipline is providing them that structure getting them up in the morning so they can get ready for school at a decent time make their own bed put their clothes away mm-hmm. pick their towel off the floor you know getting themselves ready that's discipline mm-hmm. going to bed at a normal time as opposed to sitting on the xbox and gaming on cod Mm. all night and then being super tired for school the next day to me you know providing that discipline 
as a parent is probably the most important thing. Um, even though I'm considered probably a holiday dad because I get my kids every second weekend and so I do let them get away with a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I'm always communicating about, hey, you need to get a good sleep. You need to wake up. You need to clean your room a little bit. It doesn't have to be to army standards. That's not discipline. You know, shake your dinner out, you know, get your clothes off the floor. It's pretty simple. Mm. That is discipline itself because it's setting them up for life um, to have some sort of structure. Yeah, it's 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 not just yelling at your kids and telling them what to do, showing them how to do that. Mm. So that that's probably what I didn't have growing up. Mm. I wouldn't say it's the army that gave me that. Okay. It's taking pride in my things and not having much, uh, mm. not, not having the best toys and bikes and everything else. But yeah. once a week I'd pull out my, my bike and wash it. Mm. And just having respect and the discipline to look after my things. Mm. And I'm still trying to teach my kids that even over the weekend – my son, I showed him how to wash his bike and, you know, little things like even how to turn on the hose and unroll mm. it, you know, little things like that. He, did, he didn't have those skills. Mm. But if I can teach him to look after his things, his things will look after him mm. you know, down the track. So pretty much don't be a sport brat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I mean, if you came from nothing and then you have, you know, things to give to them, you can kind of, I've seen it so many times where it's like, have everything but then the repercussions of that are kind of no different to having nothing yeah that's right yeah because you actually don't value anything that you've got and you don't know how to create it yourself and etc etc so yeah you just you do say there's so many kids out there who just take full advantage of the things that they have and they Mm. don't respect it um you know and even now i mentor children and teens and Mm. you know on our camps we you know, I teach them just to be responsible for their water bottle. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, just carry your water bottle. We've given you some things to look after. Mm. And every two minutes, it's like, you know, we get called sir or ma'am or whatever. It's, uh, sir, I've lost my water bottle. I'm like, you need to be responsible for your water bottle. <laughs> it will help you survive. Um, yeah. So just little things like that. That's the, you know, it is an army thing. The one percenters win mm. the wars and they do. You know, mm. get the little things right. The big things will come easy. Yeah. That's that's um, anything there. Yeah. That's um, like business background is obviously mm. my life, and that's you know you can't miss the little things. Otherwise, yeah. big things don't happen. Yeah. My where I was leading with that comment before was I suppose having a father figure in your life, like you've got that kind of something to teach you strength. I don't know how I'm going to word this, but the, I suppose that quote that keeps coming up is that um, good times create weak men and um, bad times create strong men. I'm not sure you've heard that one before. Yeah, 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 I've heard that, yeah. And I suppose listening to you, you're like, you've obviously come out of 20 years of it's just like on all the time. Yeah. It's just, you know, you can see the, it's not like a, I mean, maybe it, you would call it a um, hard time. You probably, it probably is. It was hard time constantly, yeah. wasn't it? So yeah, you created yeah. a strong man. But then you see what's being formed in society today. Do you look at that and do you have yeah, any comment about it? I do and I guess that brings us on to like, you know, the whole masculinity thing. And, you know, I think it's, um, for me, I don't consider myself, you know, a masculine person in the way of I have some good values and I link mm. that to those values, so which is empathy, you know, I'm compassionate, I'm caring, and I think that is probably the strongest masculinity you can get. And, you know, what do they call it? It's a flex. It's, mm. It is exactly that. And culturally, you know, I think the days have gone where I grew up in the 80s where 
um, Housing Commission, you know, you're expected to be strong and the, you know, the more you smack kids or, you know, yell at them, it's going to make them stronger. It's, it's by far, it, it's definitely not, not the right thing. It's not going to create a stronger man. It's going to create probably a weaker man. Um, and it's, yeah, I think those days are gone. Where we're at now is the fact that, you know, my own kids, I want them to be vulnerable and, you know, that will develop their, you know, their masculinity 100%. It's going to, if they can be empathetic and caring and culturally we can do that, I think we're going to create better men as opposed to the old days. I say the old days like I'm old now, but it's it's what it is. Um if you can show that vulnerability day in, day out, um, mm. I think it's going to make you a stronger person. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean? Growing up, you know, copping smacks on the ass and being yelled at and abused as a kid um, by men, mm. um, that created a negative impact. And they were, they're the negative role models I refer to. Mm. So they've sort of shaped my values, you know, towards that being the empathetic human being that I am now. Mm. The army... Include inclusive of that. When I first joined, it was all about be hard, be you know, be disciplined. You know, mm. not the disciplined as in make better, but be disciplined, be assertive, be the mm. man. And if you're not performing, you know, you you'll cop a flogging or mm. some abuse. It's definitely shaped me to where I want to be now, and that is showing that complete vulnerability as a male. Like mm. I'm not afraid to cry in front of other males and and youth and kids and show that vulnerability and show them that, yes, I can be, you know, tough, but I can also be that compassionate human being. Mm. And hopefully, you know, that does have an impact on our future. I, I tend to agree, but there's a part I disagree. And the only part I disagree, I think you've come, you've come from that where it's like, you've, you know what it's like. I feel like a lot of a lot of men today, they don't know what the discipline and the getting yelled at or getting hit or all of those yeah. actually what it's like to be strong before they've decided to start crying. So that's what I exposed that part between like, like the reason you're opening up and being vulnerable might be because of your trauma around killing someone or watching your mates yeah. die. Someone else might be because, you know, they got a soy latte instead of an almond latte and they... I, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I'm being yeah. extreme, but In, the society's norm of of the weakness that we're calling vulnerability, which I know what you're saying, being comfortable with sharing your feelings, etc. But I feel like with we've gone too far the other way, where it's all about feelings and no one's doing anything. Yeah. So you, you think it could be, you know, culturally or that person's upbringing. Um, I feel yeah. like culturally or society is definitely shaping us towards a more feminine men. Yeah, and you know, are we are we doing that ourselves as parents? So you know, I know that you know I'm going to be fair to my kids. I'm going to ground them. I'm going to take things away from them. I'm going to take the things that they care about, like their gaming or their Wi-Fi. I'm going to take that away. Uh, and you know that whole someone gets angry because they didn't get their sore latte. It's you know I just think that's it's 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 ridiculous, and it, it definitely comes back to you know their own upbringing and their mm. family values because the values do come from your own family, mm. and, and you know and if uh, some kid has been sport his whole life, you know that's 
you know, that is showing poor values in their own mm. family culture. I, yeah, I think that's where we're going wrong as parents um, and that's where we've got to get it right. Otherwise, we're creating this spoilt, you know, society. society. Yep. Which is where I speak a lot about having, you know, we have a masculine and feminine within ourselves, but we, within a family unit, we should have a masculine and feminine role models for a child in the sense of we need the nurturing, but we also need the discipline. Um, and I think the the path that we're heading, which is more broken families, um, weaker men but stronger females, it kind of creates this you know disconnect where you've got strong independent women who haven't got a man, so they're being forced into their masculine roles, then trying to care for their children when they're stressed as well. So there's imbalance in the masculine, in the man, and imbalance in, in the female. I feel like your integration is you've come from difficult time for 20 years so to be able to integrate a bit of feminine is probably really good for you because it's oh, like definitely. softening you from watching bombs blow up <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah but you know there's the other end of the scale and i completely agree with where you're coming from but is it in relation to respect are we not teaching uh, or not even teaching we're we not integrating respect into kids lives as they're growing up just as a society and a culture you know, respecting each other, saying mm. thank you when you do receive that soy, soy latte mm. or, you know, just saying, oh, sorry, I've got the incorrect order here. Mm. Um, is it okay to exchange it? You know, yeah. myself, I usually just go, oh, it's, it's incorrect. Uh, that's all right. I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm not going to die from drinking the wrong latte. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, I just, it's, yeah, I think it, it's definitely tied, linked into respect and, and I guess now that's why I'm, you know, involved in helping teenagers to, mm. to hopefully shape some of their futures and, and teach them respect for towards their parents um, because, mm. you know, it does go back to my childhood. I didn't have any respect for my family. I mm. guess yeah. Hopefully we can we can fix that that process. <laughs> I think it's probably yeah. I mean, with programs like you're doing, it's definitely going to be helping. I think the. The there's a word I'm looking for. It's like the contrast of you've seen what like these kids grow up and they're so happy to get a water bottle, and then your kid might yell at you because you want to play. He wants to play Xbox till midnight, and it's like obviously you're. I'm not saying this is what does happen, but to be able to come in and just um, tell that child like, look, you should be grateful you've got an Xbox and we're going to bed at seven. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. so that is the respect thing, and and you get the same result. Like. Uh, you know, I may be involved in helping teens, but my own teens, uh, mm. they'll still give me that same disrespect. And the minute I'll, you know, tell them to turn that mm. Xbox off or um, go to bed early, mm. we get the same reactions. And most parents would understand this: is you get the, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and some cheeky comment, and mm. it's how we respond to that. You know, whether it's, you know, do we go at them or escalate? You? escalate your voice a little bit turn it off now turn it off turn it off now or i'm turning the wi-fi off and yeah eventually you'll get the outcome but uh yeah i completely agree with that comment and it's it's a difficult one it's and we're not going to find a solution for every person Mm. because every every child's going to be different every Mm. kid's upbringing is going to be different um but you know if we can just find little ways within ourselves um, for our own kids benefits it's it's going to help a lot would you say that compulsory military service like it used to be i don't know if it was in australia i know it was in um cyprus where my family's from but do you think that would have benefit on the 
population? Um, I think it would have a benefit on some of the population. Uh, and the reason, and this is just my opinion, um, there are a lot of lazy individuals out there who just expect the handout. But every- can you get away with that in military? Uh, yeah. I personally, if I wouldn't want to be fighting next to someone who physically and emotionally does not want to be there and who was forced there. However, in saying that, in Vietnam, it had, you know, there were some of the best fighters were our conscripts. So, what's that mean? So, the lotto, yeah, so I think they were 20, 21 or 20 year olds. It's just a lotto birth date. Yeah, right. Come out, off you go. Go and get your training and you go to Vietnam. Yeah, right. um, and some of our best fighters were conscripts. So, you did your, your year of compulsory service. I don't think we're at the day and age where we could do that. Maybe some sort of a program aligned. What do you um, think's holding it back? Like when you say, I don't think we could do that. We're a peacekeeping um, nation. You know, oh, we're right. not, you know, we're not a war fighting nation. Yeah, right. Um, so you, you can't still just go and prepare yourself just in case? I think some of the um, fundamentals of uh, army training and or I'll say army because that's what I know but defence training um, mm. would help the, the discipline you know mm. just having you know some some values and like I said get up make a bed do all those small things to win the day mm. if you can teach somebody that because there's a lot of adults who don't do that now mm. they just get up throw their clothes on and off they go for the day come back and you know walk into a house that's an absolute shit fight mm. you know Washing needs to be done. There's, you know, if you can start the day on a positive and teach some of those fundamentals to society, it'd be great. Um, similar to what we do with the youth programs now, um, it's the fundamentals, and and maybe for some adults out there, it might help. Um, yeah, um, especially the young adults, you know, just crossing over that, you know, eighteen to twenty-one. Um, but you can't force them to be something like that. And I know there's a lot of ex-military guys out there who are running very similar programs um, mm. for corporate businesses and everything else to help shape them to become better people. Uh, yeah. I know those programs are out there, but mm. yeah, it's uh, if you're talking a government-led um, thing, I don't know if that would work completely. Yeah. Um, but it'd have to be a volunteer basis, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. Cause, but it would help. But if World War Three happened tomorrow, would we not all have to go or not? Oh, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, I would say that if directly impacted us and we had people landing on our beaches, we'd be yeah. doing the same as a society and I think we'd come together pretty good because yeah. Australians are very resilient. We're very resilient people. You know, we've we've shown that in the past. So, mm. um, you know, we do band together at the times of need and, you know, and that's been shown in, you know, some of our, you know, floods and, floods, yeah. Yeah, and things like that, I think. Mm. And that's where going back to... Respect. Mm. It's where respect comes for each other mm. in those times. But in between those times, uh, you know, those soy lattes are going to get to the, all of us, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I might, we might finish up by just talk, telling us about what you, what you do for your non-for-profit. Yeah, so I def- um, once I trans- uh, transitioned out of defence, um, you know, I know there's a lot of programs out there that um, were beneficial, but some of them... I wasn't really invested in and and I wanted to create um, and be a part of something uh, that would give me that 
healing and and be around like-minded people um so uh, the natural pathway was there was already a couple associations around um i approached association the gold coast chapter and um yeah i said i want to set something up on the sunshine coast and yeah and me and a few other guys um who also transitioned um and we were all like surfing together um back in our unit Mm. yeah we just made the um made it happen and it's it's grown quite rapidly and we do believe in just being around the ocean it does provide you some sort of healing and the metaphor i like to use is you know if you're out in the ocean you know you're having a surf and you have a massive wipeout and you know you've got two options you can either paddle back into the beach and just sit there and watch all the waves go by or you can paddle back out and generally you're going to have some mates out in that water as well waiting for you and if you paddle back out you know shake off that you know wave that just wiped you out and sort Mm. of you know checked your ego a little bit and you can have a conversation about it and connect and Mm. then just keep moving forward keep catching those waves Mm. so that's why um we established association veteran surfers on the sunshine coast and it's um it's growing quite rapidly now i've taken the opportunity to step back as a president sit as an ambassador Mm. and um let some of the other boys um you know take up the take up the reins and Mm. and with another fresh perspective and leadership which is great Mm -hmm. um we have a great community and it's not just about surfing you just if you just want to be around some you know like-minded people and Mm. people who just have an enthusiasm on in life and want to connect because um, the veteran community is quite large out here and was it since uh 2000 and i think it's five to 2020 we've had 1600 um suicides in the defense community so that's non-serving and um current serving members mm. who have you know subsequently um, taken their own lives so mm. if we can reduce some of that how do you see us thing. reducing it connecting mm-hmm. as soon as you leave defense connect with someone connect mm. with um you know like us and you know, even if it's just a coffee on the beach, mm. you know, we're there and we'll be there. So we'll provide that consistency. Mm. Um, that's our key messaging is just give that consistency and, yeah, hopefully it helps. If we can help that one person, mm. we've helped in some way. Yeah, so we've have, been going for have, about 18 months now. It's, have you ever had any dark moments like that? Yes, I have, yeah. Um, in 2021, um, I attempted um, suicide, um, took a whole shitload. That's when you left? Yeah, no, I was still in. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I just had some shoulder surgery. Uh, it was my fourth shoulder reconstruction. I knew my career was coming to an end. Uh, I had suffering mass anxiety, depression, and, yeah, I just decided to, you know, take a shitload of pills and woke up not in the best way. And, yeah, I knew that I had to get further help. I was already seeking help at that point. Um, mm. But I made a promise to my kids that day that I'd never do anything like that again and I'd find some... Um, I guess purpose in life again, and mm. yeah. So, yeah, and I think you know it's it's on the right pathway. There's still dark times. Um, mm. Still have massive um, depression dumps every now and again, but I know how to bring myself out of them through resilience. And do you, do you mind talking through like what like what's going on when you're in those darks? Um, it's all self worth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just you just don't want to be around anybody. Mm. Um, for me. Um, you know, I'm usually quite an enthusiastic person, um, have high motivation, high drive, um, but I never want to let myself become that victim. 
I reckon it's a lot to do with a little bit of the ADHD as well gets me moving. So I consider that a bit of a blessing. I think it brings me out of it a little bit. If I can get moving, just go to for a drive down the beach or, mm. you know, um, yeah, it can, it can get me going again. Um, you know, I don't rely on a solely pharmaceutical approach either. Um, there's a lot of things that I need to mm. get right, like get my mindset right, a little bit of, you know, mindfulness, um, just being at peace and also just showing some self-care and, you know, telling myself it's going to be okay. And, yeah, that's sort of – that's the resilience piece in me. That And connection's a big one. Um, you know, once – if I can surround myself with people that, it, you know, can bring me out of that, um, mm. yeah, it's, it's a good thing. And there are many veterans out there who have done it for me as I've done that for them, so – yeah, and I'll so, continue that. So the guys leave and then because they've been with like all their brothers and for so long and then they leave and they're all alone, that's what causes the depression, do you think? I think so, yeah. It's because you lose your sense of purpose and belonging. So, um, you know, if you asked me, let's say a year and a half ago, um, once I just left the army, if we just met, first thing you're going to ask, and most people do, it's just human instinct, is what do you do? Hmm. For quite some time it was... But proudly, I would say, oh, I'm a soldier, infantry soldier, um, you know, army, proud, you know, no hesitation. Um, for quite a lot of people, once they leave, what you get that question and it really gets you thinking, oh, shit, what do I, you know, what do I do? People ask that all the time. Mm. Why don't we just change the way we approach? And this might be the respect thing. And instead of asking somebody what they do, ask who they are. Mm. And maybe that'll link to their values. And so now I just answer when someone says, what do you do? I just say, I'm a, I'm a you know, kind, empathetic, compassionate, and a consistent human being. Mm. I'm Nathan. Who are you? And I think that's probably the best approach. It throws a lot of people off, you know, but, yeah, it, it, it helps me internally. Mm. Yeah, maybe, maybe a slice of that to some people might yeah. help. Good idea. Mm. I think people, just on that, and we'll finish up, I think people do take a lot of pride in their identity is that i mean that's probably what's exactly happened what right? it is. So you've yep. identified as a soldier and you're no longer so you've lost that identity and it's something that i've um because i've come from um a meditation called vipassana meditation where you're kind of teaching yourself not to attach to anything and i think you know i've a builder and i've studied architecture and i've got the pottery studio and do podcasts and like when people ask what I do I kind of actually get stuck anyway I'm like fuck what do I do (laughs) (laughs) everything yeah so I kind of I know what you mean but from the other side where I do too many different things I don't want to identify as any of them yeah so just kind of you know I just do me yeah identify (laughs) you know through your values and and obviously you definitely have a passion um for a lot of things and yeah that's yeah I I purposely ask people you know who they are Mm. not what they do now and you know, maybe it'll check some people as well. And, yeah. Yeah. Like us who just do a bit of everything yeah. and yeah, maybe um, we'll become a compassionate or a more compassionate society if we start asking those questions. Mm. I yeah. agree. Thanks for coming no, on. Thanks, thanks for having good. us. Thank it's you. good to hear your stories. Yeah.